welcome to the latest instalment of Viv and Dave's podcast, Real Voices of Happy Valley. In this one, Dave talks to Andrew Bibby, another published author in Hebden Bridge. We have such talented people in the valley. And um, he's talking, part of what he talks about and that he's written about is housing co-ops, which could be part of a solution to the appalling housing crisis we find ourselves in now. So, Dave? Yes, and um, well, he's written a book about Snuckloff Mill as well. Mm-hmm. Um, world-renowned, apparently, uh, as a huge workers' cooperative in the 1870s, well, from the 1870s onwards, and about cooperation being part of the spirit and culture of the Calder Valley. It's often said that most people have a book in them, but most people don't follow that through. Some, like Andrew, are prolific and, um, with you know, with lots to say. He does make up for it with his uh, books about cooperatives, because he's a historian anyway. Uh, it's a lot, it's lots, of, lots of journalism he's done, but books about uh, cooperatives. And he's written three crime novels as well. Oh, yeah. So here we are, sitting in uh, Andrew Bibby's lovely kitchen, um, with a nice cup of tea. Um, Come to talk to you, Andrew, um, with a whole lot of things I could talk to you about. We're particularly interested in uh, books you had published earlier this year, uh, These Houses Are Ours, which is about uh, cooperative and community-led housing alternatives of about 100 years ago. It is, um, before the First World War. Um, and I suppose my interest in this subject um, follows partly from my involvement in the local community land trusts, and maybe we'll talk about that later on, who knows. But um, the, before the First World War, there, there was a housing crisis, just like there is at the moment now. Um, and there was a small amount of council housing being done in some areas. But there was also a, quite a widespread movement um, of what we would now, I think, call community-led housing, cooperative housing, um, very much bottom-up housing initiatives around the country. I mean, right around the country, from Cornwall up to Scotland, from, from over in Suffolk to, to South Wales, where um, societies, cooperative societies were being um, established to create affordable housing, affordable, work, affordable working-class housing. Um, as I said, at a time when um, when there was a major housing need. And I think this is a, a story that's been forgotten. It has links to the valley. I mean, my, my book is, is talking about the national picture, but um, Hebden Bridge and um, the, Calder, the Upper Calder Valley does very much have a role in the story. Um, Crossley Greenwood, who was the son of Joseph Greenwood, who was the very well-known manager of the Nutcliffe Cooperative in Hebden Bridge. That was Worker Run. Uh, Crossley Greenwood was his fifth son. Crossley Greenwood uh, had a role in going around the country, uh, talking at public meetings about the idea, trying to get other uh, other towns and cities involved in the movement. And we also had in Heptonstall um, uh, uh, an architect, um, Sutcliffe, George Lister Sutcliffe, who... Um, eventually moved down to London and became involved as the architect of the movement. So um, a number of points where, as it were, the Calder Valley fed into that picture. Interesting in the sort of, these houses are ours, 
it's about cooperative and community-led alternatives to what was basically private mm. ownership or private renting, mm. you know, previously. Mm. Um, and it was before what we think of as council houses. The, you know, I'm interested in this part because mm. I think it was the Wheatley Housing Act 1924, just, yeah. just coming up for 100 years ago. Yeah. Uh, from what I believe was the first Labour government, kick-started right. council housing in, in, in a big um, way. Radical MP from Glasgow, as I recall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the cooperative idea wasn't what council houses, or the, the management of council houses became, was it? it was yeah, um, housing became an issue during the First World War, uh, partly because of, of direct action by... Um, tenants, particularly in Glasgow and, and um, Clydeside, um, saying that, you know, we're at war, we're absolutely refusing to pay the increased rents that our landlords are trying to demand of us. So there was um, widespread rent strikes. Uh, it came to court. There were um, major demonstrations. And it was Lloyd George, actually, who, who rapidly realised that he had to do something about this. And uh, rent controls were introduced uh, in 1915. That, what, what, I'm really in, what I'm really interested in is, is the, the the difference between the, the cooperative, the, yeah. the, the cooperative housing principles. Okay, maybe I should get to what, what I, where I was about to get to, which was to say that um, the 1919 Act actually introduced um, new measures to encourage council housing, but it also introduced new measures to encourage cooperative housing. And one model being talked about at that time was the idea that councils would own land, councils would buy land for development, but Cops would run the, the societies. So yeah, that sounds be, a fantastic I idea to me. An interesting model, actually. Yeah. Um, so you would be a tenant of your own society. Your society would be the landlord, but ultimately the council's role will be holding the land and getting the land in the first place. But that model didn't really develop, um, and there were particular reasons. Um, the the nineteen nineteen Act didn't do as many favours for co-ops as it did for council. Uh, council um, housing endeavour. Um, so that's really why we ended up for much of the 20th century with most social housing being provided by councils and very little being provided by co-ops. Uh, would it make it, would it have made much of a difference? I would guess that councils, local authorities, would have access to more resources than small cooperative yeah. movements, which helps them build yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, it comes down to them. money, doesn't it, actually, yeah. at the end of the day? And it still comes down to money, finding the capital. Mm-hmm. And societies did did struggle to find the capital, particularly after the war. Um, they used ethical ethical investment. They did what we would now call community shares, which mm-hmm. is uh, what's happened locally with, with a number of co-ops. I mean, I'm thinking of the Fox and Goose in Hebden Bridge, the Puzzle Inn in Sorby Bridge, I'm mm-hmm. thinking of the post office in Hepton Stall, um, Pennine Community Power, all have raised money from within the community, investment capital, mm-hmm. um, but, but patient capital um, from, from supporters. Um, and that was used 100 years ago. Uh, that was being used to fund the um, capital costs of, of cooperative societies. You sort of answered my next question, oh, which is on. what can we learn from yeah, okay. now from <laughs> what was done 100 years ago? Yeah, so there's nothing new about that idea of, of going to the community for um, for literal buy-in, you know, mm-hmm. p- people putting their savings into local 
initiatives. Um, what can we learn? I think we can learn. Uh, I mean, I think it's a, quite an inspiring story. Um, mm. The fact that it happened then and has been forgotten about to a large extent is, is I think, something to remember. As I said at the beginning, day, I've been involved in our own Calder Valley Community Land Trust, and mm-hmm. that is, in a sense, the direct descendant of what was going on 120 years ago. That is uh, a community saying, OK, we've got a housing need. What sort of housing do we need? How can we bring that about? How can we make sure that our towns, you know, Hebden and Todmorden and so on, mm-hmm. have the housing that meets local people's need rather than the housing which external developers think might be needed? So there's a lesson there in terms of communities doing things for themselves. Um, the idea that you can actually make this happen if this, if the will is there. Um, money is the root of a lot of the, um, the difficulties. And, you know, we have to ensure that we have funding models which are robust. Slightly easier now than it was pre-1919 because there are grants available mm-hmm. from the government. Um, so you can get, they come through Homes England, you can get grants, but you also then have to get capital from elsewhere. And one way might be to, to go to the community and say, well, look, you've got, you've got a, a few hundred pounds, a few thousand pounds that you're looking for a good home for. Think about investing it in your own local community. I, I mean, I, I think that's, <laughs> it's the past. I think it's also the future. I think this, it's the this future is, too. This is me per- yeah. personally thinking because... Yeah. Um, the whole move towards uh, from it's always been there, but from the uh, <laughs> strangely named Fair Rents Act in mm. the early seventies, mm. uh, and then the selling off of council houses mm. and then council estates from from the eighties onwards. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't do you any good to say I told you so. But mm. you know, in forty years ago, you know, many mm. of us knew this is going to lead to a housing crisis, and here we are yeah. in a housing here crisis. Here we are with a housing crisis. Yeah, and. I, I don't see either the current or any government in the near future really sort of solving this problem personally. Mm. By all means, other people might have different different views. So the solution may be in communities. Mm. It's more like it's some of the solutions, certainly. Yes, yeah. yes, you're probably um, right. On. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think community land trusts, uh, and there are now what three or four hundred around the mm. country. So it, it's a it's a growing movement, growing idea. Um, can be, be exemplars. They can create decent housing, good housing, environmentally good housing. I don't think they can produce the quantity of housing mm. that we need, um, but they, they can perhaps be a sort of model for others to follow. Uh, I mean, personally, I think there's a role too for the local state. I'd like to think that the local state can get back involved in, in housing. Mm. Oh, I'm, and, I'm, you know, I'm a big fan of housing associations too, although I would <laughs> wish that housing associations were rather more democratic mm. than they are. Um, they've become, very, some of them have become very, very large mm. organisations with very well-paid senior managers and I think out of touch with their tenants and out of touch with their communities. But, um, but yeah, uh, solving the housing need in the next few years is going to need, you know, as many different routes forward as we can, we can think of to, um, to get those. So those, there's a variety of answers. There's a variety. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I said that co-op housing in Britain became very, very small scale after the, 
well, after the First World War in the 20th century. If you look to other countries in Europe, if you look to Canada or the States, co-op housing is actually a really large sector. Mm. A lot of people uh, live in, in, in cooperatively run societies and, um, and rent from their, their own society. So it's a model which works very well in other countries. And I think it's a model which could work much, much better here if, um, you know, if it had some resources. And maybe, who knows, if there's a change of government in the near future, you never know what might come in. That, would, that, that would be uh, nice in itself. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah, I mean, I just, I, it is quite interesting that, um, and I don't really want to get into you know, the various ideologies, but, you know, let's do it anyway. There is, there is a big push in this country ideologically to say everybody wants their own their own, own their own home uh, and that we should have affordable houses and I think personally I think the language is just wrong mm-hmm. um, whether well, everybody wants to own their own home or not yeah. not everyone is going to yeah. be well, able, be able to that has to be taken into and you know yeah. I mean we've, we've seen home ownership yeah. shrink since her yeah. day um, because it's become less and less affordable particularly yeah. For, for young people. And the, the, the big problem problem in our country, as I see it, is that housing, which is a, a human need, you know, we all need somewhere to live, has become commodified. It's become mm. a, yeah, a, a financial thing. So, you know, people with, with housing see their house values increase and it becomes, it becomes, it distorts. It distorts. The, I, I, absolutely. And that's yeah. why I, I hate the term affordable housing. Yeah. Because we can all afford a yeah. cardboard box in a shop doorway. Mm. Uh, we can't necessarily all afford mm. a home, mm. house flat mm. or anything else. Um, that will provide warmth, mm. uh, etc., for us and our family, whatever mm. size of, mm. of family, or whether you our culture is a nuclear family or extended family, because we do have different mm. cultures in this mm. in this country. Um, so the affordable just hides the problem, yeah. <laughs> really, as as, as yeah. a term. Um, to to broaden it out a little, um, you've also written. All Our Own Work, which is about cooperatives at work. We've talked about cooperatives mm. at home, uh, as it were. Um, and Hebden Bridge, Knockcloth Mill, plays a major yes. role. Yes, Hebden Bridge had, for 50 years, um, probably the best-known manufacturing cooperative in the country. Uh, and people, all, all sorts of people came to Hebden Bridge to, to see this uh, textile mill, which was effectively being run by its workers, uh, it's, it's a great story. Um, I um, I can see the uh, the front cover. That is Knockcloth Mill. That is the Knockcloth Mill in Keith. And room. I guess the Knockcloth Pub. <laughs> yes. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I mean it's um, a story which I think um, needs to be remembered locally. Um, I've heard it said that what you need to understand in terms of the social history of our valley is that it was a cooperative mm. valley. Perhaps not particularly strongly a trade union valley, although Todmorden was, was much more strongly unionised than Hebden. Um, but it was certainly a hotbed of cooperation. Um, Todmorden got its cooperative store in eighteen. 18- 46, that's just two years after the Rochdale Pioneers. The, the, the famous one. The famous <laughs> Rochdale Pioneers. And of course, Rochdale wasn't the first co-op, but it, it um, became sort of symbolic of the start of a, of a, new, a new wave of cooperation. Hebden got its um, cooperative store in 1848, 
all very closely linked to the Chartist movement, obviously mm. going on at the time. It was a hotbed of Chartism too, our valley. Um, but so, okay, let me take you back to the Nutcliffe Mill. Nutcliffe Mill was um, founded by a fascinating um, figure called Joseph Greenwood, mm-hmm. um, born in the 1830s in Mythamroyd. His parents were um, handloom weavers, and I can tell you that handloom weavers in the 1830s were very, very hard up. It's a really tough time. There's actually a Royal Commission at the time to look mm-hmm. into their, their suffering. Um, didn't do anything, but... Uh, <laughs> um, Joseph Greenwood became a fustian cutter, um, this is cutting the fustian cloth, which was the, the basis of the Hebden economy at that time. Um, but he, um, he he had always been attracted by the idea of, of whether cooperation could provide better working conditions for people like him. Um, and in 1870, he got the chance to, with, with workmates, to create what became the Nutcliffe Mill, employed Three, over 300 people at its, its peak, uh, women as well as men. Women were important in the business. Um, they did the making up of the clothes. Uh, in fact, if you know the Nutcliffe Mill, it was the top floor that they worked on where there was mm-hmm. most light. Um, and as I say, it became extremely successful. It was um, financially very successful. It was profitable every single year, um, which isn't bad going over 50 years. Um, it gave... A share of the profits to its workers, so it shared profits with its workers. Fantastic. The, the dividend to workers, mm. as well as the dividend to customers. Which also means that that, that money stayed, it stayed in, in the, the local economy, economy know, rather than I disappearing know, off yeah. to a mansion also, somewhere also, else. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. But also, it um, it it was a sort of pole in the community where things happened, and one of the things it made happen was the links between Hebden Bridge and. and Tomlinson too was involved in this um, with Oxford University mm. in the 1880s and 1890s. Um, and at that stage, we just had the Reform Act. There was discussion in both Oxford and Cambridge about how they could meet the needs of a, a, a new, more democratic society. It wasn't fully democratic, of course, but it was more democratic. How could they reach working class people in particular? And one way they did that was by um, the outreach programme, the University Extension Movement. So you, you, if you were in Hebden Bridge or if you were in Todmorden, say in 1888, you could have gone along on a Saturday night to the Cooperative Hall and you could have heard Oxford Dons um, giving lectures on, maybe on literature, maybe on history, maybe on science. Um, and from that, um, from that came a very strong um, uh, a, a, a nucleus of local working class men and women, people working in the mills, who uh, worked to really push the idea of adult education, further education. Um, and in fact, the Workers' Education Association, the WEA, one of its founders was originally from Walsden, and then started, yeah, and yes. then started walk, working in in Hebden Bridge and in the weaving that, shop. That's fantastic. Because my first teaching experience yeah. was um, as a part time tutor in the evenings uh, in for the Workers' Education Association. Yeah. In what was then that would be the late seventies. That was it was in a what was then called an unemployed workers centre. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> which is another yep. the, the the working class, the organised working class, trade unions, cooperative mm. movements have always thought 
of education as um, a fantastic resource yeah. for for, yeah. for people, for individuals yeah. and communities, and, sure. and for yeah. themselves as, as trade unions yeah. and yeah, whatever. Yeah. Yes. Well, let's remember Robert Halstead's his name. Um, his parents both died whilst he was a kid, so he mm. was an orphan. He was um, brought up by his brother. Um, obviously, went into the textile trade because that's what he did, um, but was not really uh, not really at home in the weaving shed where he worked. There's a story of um, somebody going around the weaving shed and seeing. I think it was a copy of Ruskin propped up against the loom. He was reading Ruskin um, in his spare time mm-hmm. when when the looms were. We're working okay. He was, um, I think if he'd been born today, he would have been an academic. There's no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, with, with two others, were responsible for creating what became the WEA. That's just at the turn of the 20th century. Uh, so an important character. And then, I mean, Dave, I'm, I'm off um, uh, the weekend to Hebden Bridge Literary and Scientific Society, mm-hmm. the Lytton Sci. Um, they got a, a talk been given by the um, director of the National Portrait Gallery, who incidentally yeah. is from Hebden Bridge, but that's another story. But um, <laughs> yeah, the, more local yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, everything that, happens with an in interesting the story. But, um, the Lytton Sai was created in 1905, 1906 by some of those people who'd been to Oxford University to mm. the summer schools. Um, Robert Halstead had left the valley by that point, but the first secretary of the Lytton side was a name I've already mentioned, Crossley Greenwood, yeah. involved Perhaps. in the Housing Society. So, you know, a lot was going on nationally, but a lot of it was also focused very much on what was happening in, in our valley. Um, I think significant social history, which, which I don't know, do you, want, do you want to argue that that has helped um, colour the way that Hebden Bridge and Tom Bernard today. I mean, well, I, it, I mean, I think I think you can have an argument. There is very much a, a cooperative feel. I mean, around the corner from where we are, we've got yeah. Valley Organics, which is a co-op. Yeah, yeah. Not, I know lots of people who either still yeah. work or have worked yeah. at Suma in their time. Yes. <laughs> it, yeah, and it, it's it's not just the sort of workplaces some some people have. Mm. It is. I think it's a part of a part of the, the culture. Yeah, the I think I would argue not just cooperation, but mm. more sort of the the radicalism of, mm. of the valley. I wonder if you can trace that back to 150 years back to the fact we had a very strong cooperative movement here. We had a, a workplace which was run by the workers, mm. um, and some and, and obviously the Oxford University links. Some of that maybe is still in the air. Around us, I, I think so, and it would be really nice to think that's going to. And I'm speaking as someone who worked for years in adult education, yeah. anyway, <laughs> uh, in sort of like schools with the parents of the kids who are in yeah. the schools quite often. Um, so I'm so sort of very very keen on on that development, and I've always thought that sort of you know, working cooperatively uh, works better than. Yeah, to yes. oversimplify it, the private sector. But anyway, uh, anyway. we've been talking for quite a while. Um, thank you very much, Andrew Bibby. Well, that was really interesting. Good. Good.